Shalom everybody. I'm Liel K. Bridgeford and this is Unmarginalized. Before we jump in, please note that the following episode contains discussions about mental health, poverty and ableism. So please take care as you listen and check out our show notes for support options. This week, I have an amazing guest, Renee. Renee Barker-Mulholland is a Biripai and Dangati woman who identifies as Black, disabled and a staunch feminist. Did I pronounce everything okay? You did. You did wonderfully. Thank you so much. Of course. Um, and welcome to Unmarginalized. I'm, I'm very, very happy to be here. So can we start with what intersections of identity do you navigate? Um, so the one that I've lived with the longest is being First Nations person, um, Aboriginal, Indigenous, depends on who you're asking, what they identify with. I don't mind all of the above. Um, but so my mobs are Biripai and Dungari, which well done on, on getting them because I know they can be a little bit of a mouthful. So Biripai and Dungari lands are situated east coast, sort of New South Wales, a bit further up from Sydney, not too far into... I call it heaven on earth, but, you know, that's just me. It's where the mountains meet the ocean and life is just a bit, little bit more special for me. Sounds beautiful. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I don't remember when I first knew I'm Aboriginal. It was just a, it was just a thing that I was. It's kind of like when you um, come to realise you're a person and then as a person I was an Aboriginal person so that is the identity that identity that I have lived with the longest um I'm disabled so I have I define them as being mobility limiting um and I also suffer chronic pain um and I also have psychosocial illnesses so um what's probably more commonly referred to as mental illnesses. So major depression and um, anxiety. And I think um, those identities are really important to recognise um, because, you know, being an Aboriginal person in a wheelchair, quite often those are the things that people see first. And um, I, I think I want to acknowledge just how disabling it can be to have a mental illness sometimes. So. Um, yeah, I I probably started identifying as disabled a few years ago now, um, but yeah, after a, a long long stretch to get there, I finally got my diagnosis, and then that led me down the path to identifying in a feminist. Oh gosh, I've been a feminist my whole life, I think. Yeah. Um, from I always say that Lisa Simpson was my gateway into feminism because she was. She was the most accessible feminist to me. She was the one that was the outcast in her family that was always saying, you know, hang on, what about this? And isn't that questionable? And shouldn't we be thinking about that? So, so yeah, that's, that's sort of where I sit, very far to the left. And I guess I definitely with the left and right, I will definitely want to get to that. Um, but before we do, I wondered if you can kind of give us a, you know, for the listeners who may not kind of know much about what intersectionality means or how it can affect someone's life, can you kind of explain in maybe with an example or something how having those different identities and your kind of unique identity with all of those communities you belong to, how does that affect your life? Intersectionality, I see, um, 
so I kind of see when you are born and you're given a life, you kind of have, I uh, use a, a, a quilt as a metaphor, a blanket. Um, and some people just have one or two patches on that quilt and other people have, you know, an entire space filled with different patches and some of them overlap and some of them are bigger than others. And that kind of um, is a way to have a visual representation of how these levels of what we call intersectionality fit in with each other. And it doesn't mean that one blanket is, is more beautiful than the other. It just means different things, you know. Um, it, it means different um, layers is the way that I put it. Um, and so the second part of your question was how they impact me. You know, the first thing that comes to mind when I want to answer that question is um, how lucky I am because I, <laughs> I have had the pleasure of knowing and spending time with such a different range of people, um, you know, from someone who is experiencing um, they might not have secure housing and um, they feel comfortable chatting with me and I might meet them for a couple of minutes on public transport or, um, you know, having an identity that means I feel comfortable talking to everyone from the person who might not have a home to the Prime Minister. I'd quite happily talk to the Prime Minister. In fact, I'd probably say quite a few things to any politician that would listen to me. But so I feel like um, that intersectionality has given me the chance to have not exposure, but get a glimpse into the life of so many different kinds of people. Um, so that's the first thing that it brings me. Um, unfortunately, because of the society and the kind of way that our society is structured at the moment, that means that I don't always get not what's fair, what's equitable. So for a long time, even I was not sure what the difference between equality and equity is. Um, and I kind of see it as, you know, equality being everyone gets the same and equity being everyone gets what they need. So I don't want to say I'm at the bottom of the ladder, <laughs> yeah. but I'm pretty far down on the pecking order in terms of that. And so that has meant that for the majority of my life, I've been poor, <laughs> not physically poor. Um, and emotionally rich, but, um, you know, it, it's a, I think it's a really important thing to recognize how, how much lack of resources and poverty can impact on someone's life. So. Absolutely. And I, for those listeners who missed maybe season one, I actually talked with one of my guests, Julie, was talking about her experience as a disabled girl who grew up in a poor family and how that really impacted her entire journey because she didn't have access to medical treatments that or yeah. equipment that she might have otherwise have had. Now, can you tell us about your art practice? What do you do? I like to call myself a black of all trades because I, I can't, I can't make, um, I don't like committing to one particular thing. Probably one thing that I have a, a very, very great love for um, is creating clothing or um, costumes or I don't know I, I don't like calling myself a sewer because it looks like I'm calling myself a sewer when you just write it online um you know the this big passion I have for clothing it comes from um 
a desire to express who I am on the inside, on the outside. So um, when I put together an outfit, it's not, um, you know, what's functional or, oh, I mean, that does impact it too, but it's it's coming from an expressive part of me. So, but I also love painting. Um, painting, I've, I've done it in secret for a long time. Why in secret? Well, for the first little while, it was probably because more of a, felt more secretive because it was only um, something I got to do every now and again. So um, because of, again, because of poverty, I didn't get to sort of go to the after school art classes or do those things. Um, and then when I was at school and I was doing all these, you know, I had access to all these different resources. I would do a sculpture one day and then a pencil drawing the next day. And I felt the the common thread between all my work was me. It didn't need to be a style or a colour or whatever it is. Um, and so when I was doing all these different um, different artworks and, and different styles, I had a, an, an art teacher that said something to me that um, impacted me for, gosh, the next 20 years of my life or, my, or almost 20 years. When I think back to it, I think obviously the, the young girl that heard this was in a very bad place and I, I can see that. But for a long time it stopped me calling myself an artist because he said you're never going to be a good one if you don't pick a style and stick with it. That's horrible. Yes, and it was it was somebody that I actually really respected at the time too. It was someone that um, I didn't have a lot of adults in my life that were stable and so um, to have one that was stable say something to me that I felt you know, it had never been a problem up until then. I could do, you know, I could make an outfit one day and then paint the next day. And it was just, like I said, that commonality was me. Um, and so when he told me, I was like, oh, what? Are you, like, what? <laughs> do, does that mean I'm not allowed to call myself an artist? Because I, you know, at the end of year art school, uh, uh, sorry, end of year art show, I don't have six paintings in a series that reflect through each of them um and you know looking back now i think that's a a product of my environment i was a product of my environment i didn't have that stability so i couldn't produce in that i couldn't produce artworks that were all the same because i was coming from such um turbulence um and so yeah when he told me this it it may it took away my confidence in calling myself an artist. Of course. Absolutely. I think it's really important to acknowledge as well that your output as an artist was different because of what you were going through, and that makes sense, but also to acknowledge that that doesn't make you less of an artist. And I think I was actually going to talk to you about this, this sense of, you know, all these rules around what art looks like and should look like, and I think that those can really act as gatekeepers. And that yeah. is an, it, just a perfect example of that. You know, I see that in poetry so much, you know, if it doesn't kind of subscribe to a certain way of writing and presenting that it's not considered or people don't see it as poetry. And I think that's from my perspective, I feel that, that those are really gatekeeping kind of methods. And that's, you know, really interesting um, that it happens in so many communities because for for a long while that's why I didn't identify as disabled because I thought no I'm not I'm not that I'm not what I'm seeing represented um 
and yeah, it's so, so gatekeeping. Gatekeeping, for anybody listening who maybe doesn't know what gatekeeping is, it's like people build a stereotype of what, you know, an artist should be. An artist should be a person who paints paintings and, you know, does sculpture. Whereas an artist can be someone who creates an outfit, for example. Um, so there's that preventing someone from identifying because they don't fit a particular set of rules or um, actions or uh, attributes that they that someone thinks they should should have. Um, and yes, it's it's really damaging because I um, when people gatekeep and keep others from a community, people lose that support that a community can bring. And also from the other hand, I think that we also lose the richness of what our art culture can look like and what our communities can look like because we don't value that art made by people who are left out of those kind of gates or those rules. And often those people are people from multiple kind of minorities, you know, who navigate intersectionality. So... I'm curious, you know, we talked about poetry for the first, when we met in real life, we talked about poetry yeah. and you identify as a poet and so am I. And, I, you know, I was wondering when you started writing poetry and when you actually started calling yourself a poet. Well, see, that's that was like the, the final frontier for me um, because I feel like poets are devalued so much in our society. You know? um, and especially in the age of the internet where access to people's words is so easy um so that value of of expression that comes through as you know as a poet it's um i think people devalue it i think that's probably why it took me the longest um to identify as a poet it's probably only in the last like two years maybe two or three years and so what am i i'm 30 so I wrote my first poem when I was about seven, if I do my math correctly, seven or eight. Um, yeah. I think my mum held on to it, which was really lovely. When after after she passed, I um, was going through her things and I found it and thought, oh, this is, you know, I haven't seen this in 25 years. Wow. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, it took me a good 25 years to identify from writing that first poem. I think it was about my family and how much I love them or something like that. Um, but f from that point, it took me yeah, a very long time to identify as a poet and a writer as well. Yeah, I had the same experience. I wrote my first poem when I probably when I first learned to write. And then, yeah, only in the last few years, I've started identifying as a poet. And definitely, I think a part of it is because of the poetry that I was exposed to was always very narrow definition of what poetry is and can be and only in the last few years i've been exposed to all kinds of poetry um and started writing with so much more freedom um, yeah which is such um a, an amazing feeling very big relief and with that I'll, i'm wondering if i can there's one of your poems that i love and it's called i want to buy a ford capri <laughs> and I just loved it. But I'm wondering if you don't mind me reading the last three stanzas. Is that okay? Absolutely. Go for it. Okay. Ah, there it is. Freedom. I desire freedom. I sat and typed and pondered. Yes, I enjoy the nice things about the car, but it's the freedom, the freedom. 
It's not suitable to carry a wheelchair. It's not right for baby seats. It's right to take me where I want to go, on my own, to where I need. So I want to buy a Ford Capri and drive it to the beach, stay and watch the sunset, and then get fish and chips for tea. I want to touch the ocean with my feet and feel the space around me. And if I drive my Ford Capri, I don't have to say please. I just love that. Such a powerful ending. It's that that's so cool. I've never heard anybody else read my poetry and so um to hear my words reflected through somebody else, um, that's really oh, it's really confronting in a good way, but it's like wow. Okay. I, and I know exactly where it comes from, you know. And that's and that that line that you started with, ah, there it is. I had written a poem and I was it's sometimes it's so hard to put into words what it means, what the poem's about. Um, and then it came to me like a light bulb moment. That was what I was dream because I don't know if you've ever seen a Ford Capri, but they um they look like Mario Kart cars. And you know, I I'd spent all night dreaming about putting little you know lace details on it and and doing the seats up and thinking about it and thinking about why I why I wanted this car. And then it was like, aha, I, you know, I've, I've excised that demon because of, well, whatever that was, um, because I finally got to the moment of that's, that's where it is. And I think that's why poetry is such an important, um, an important thing because it, it can, for me, it can be almost stream of consciousness of, of, of writing. And then, you know, to be able to have someone's, or not unfiltered but free-flowing thought and and get that little and I mean I, I hope that people can understand when they read that last little part what imagine themselves going to the beach and imagine the freedom of of what it means to have that and be able to do that yeah definitely and I love how accessible your poetry is we haven't talked about it actually before in a lot of details but we actually both contributed to the anthology that was recently published by Blacking called We've Got This and that's about um, stories by disabled parents that's the part of the title and I'm wondering I've been as I've been reading it I've been reflecting on how being a parent can influence our art and our writing and I've been kind of pondering you know how is that for you the experience of parenting and creating art what is that how do they go together, if at all? How do they influence each other? It's a great question. Um, for a long time, I wanted to be a parent. For, from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a parent. So I think in some ways before I became a parent, it was reflected. I was, that sort of desire was reflected in my work. Um, and then there's such, oh, they're fountains of inspiration. Um, I think it's just, Oh, firstly, before I go off on that tangent, um, we've got this. Is reading it has been such an experience because obviously, um, you know, I kind of knew a little bit about your story and some other people's stories, but um, seeing the commonality between, um, you know, because I was a parent before I identified as disabled, yeah, and then. That difference in that shifting of understanding 
um, has been amazing. So I'm so I'm so proud to be in this book. I will tell everybody that will listen. You know, my children are my my the thing I love to talk about the most. Um, so and you know, initially they do become this great fountain of inspiration because they're is there anything more beautiful than looking at your child who's asleep in your arms? And and I think it's the greatest privilege in the world to be able to hold such a fragile and unprotected being and be, be a safe space for them. Like it's, if you could bottle that feeling, I'm sure we could solve a lot of the world's problems. But so, you know, they become this fountain of inspiration. But now, um, now that my eldest child is getting older, he just turned 14, um, finding myself wanting to collaborate with them on artistic ventures because um, I just think they're a really cool person. Yeah. (laughs) You know, being able to take that next step to go, hey, I've got this idea, um, you know, how about we talk about it and and how about we um, explore that and, uh, you know, this, it's it's a kind of a, a relationship that you can only have with someone that you've, not necessarily that you've parented, but that you've had some really close connection with. Um, and so it's really nice to have that back and forth of like not having to explain yourself or or saying, hey, remember that one random time that we did that thing? And then, you know, they can remember. That's a very fantastic experience. I can't wait for my kids to be old enough for that. We do have little collaborations, but, you know, my eldest is only not even four. So our collaborations are a bit of like just glue everywhere. Yeah. Um, and do you talk to them about kind of intersectionality or your identities, what it means, any of that? All the time. It's um, one thing that I um, didn't have any experience about um, in terms of intersectionality. I, I don't identify as, um, I, I identify as, cisgendered and heterosexual so um you know i don't have those other layers of intersectionality as well um and so being mindful not only to talk about my experience of being disabled and a woman um but also making sure that they're aware of intersectionalities that come um with other identities as well um so yeah i talk about I talk about it with them a lot um, and, uh, you know, especially in terms of gender expression, um, both of my children identify as non-binary. So um, being able to give them the language to know that they they can say that or, um, you know, being proud in their their cultural heritage as well. It's, yeah, from, from the moment they can hear me, I talk to them about it because, you know, that's my experience and I... I want them to know why mum's getting upset because the wheelchair doesn't, you know, I can't get on this tram because the wheelchair doesn't fit on it. Or um, I want them to know the reality, um, but also understand how it impacts our life. And that's uh, one of the benefits of having, you know, a parent who's kind of multiply marginalised, you know, having that understanding and expressing that to your children I think there's no one better to do that than you and they're no doubt growing up to become much more kind of open-minded and inclusive in their thinking than our generation has ever been. 
yeah, it's, it's mind blowing. There's one really quick story I have to tell you. Um, when, uh, you know, we played a lot of video games as a family, we play a lot of video games and they often have the trope of saving the princess or, um, you know, the princess needing to be saved. Um, and I, I overheard a conversation that um, my big child had when they were about eight or nine and, you know, they were playing with their friends and their friends were saying something about, oh, no, we've captured the princess. And um, Big leaned in and said, you may have captured her, but you will never own her. Oh. <laughs> and I had to keep myself from, from like, bursting in there and, and being so proud of him because it was just like, yes, I'm raising a little feminist. He doesn't even know. Yeah, that's very impressive for that age. And I really think we can kind of be leaders in, I guess, providing an example of how you can have these conversations with children because so much of the time I think in mainstream society and culture it's been seen as like something that we should protect children from or something like that, these kind of issues. And they're so important from a young age. So, um, yeah, I recently bought my kids this book that has a disabled kid as a protagonist and it was it's kind of started such great conversations together and i actually use social media for that benefit actually showing my kids kind of um pictures of people that look you know in i guess quote unquote different from what they're used to seeing on the streets so that they get used to that and we talk about it in a really kind of open way which i just absolutely love because i didn't have that growing up yes and to be able to see diversity um, and to see people's self-controlled narrative, well, as much as you can control your narrative on social media, but people's own expression of that and own voices and, yeah, going straight to the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. Yeah. actually showed my kid the other day someone, we were talking about people with no hands and this is a, a conversation and I showed him one of the people that I follow who doesn't who has a limb difference in her arms and um we talked about you know and there was a photo that photos that she kind of posted with and one of them she holds a book about disability um with both you know with kind of one with her hand missing and the other hand and my my kid was like talking about it and he's only less than four and it's like why is she happy and so well, he's happy, you know. Um, but there was, I think, underneath that was maybe he's kind of, uh, kind of slowly thinking about what it means to be disabled and proud and be open in the world and and be happy, even though your limb might be quote unquote missing. It's it's really um, lovely to know, see their little brains ticking over and thinking and all those uh, yeah i'm such a nerd all those neural pathways opening up and thinking you know what does that really mean and that's um kind of in terms of disability that's um one thing that we've spoken about with our children because they have dis disabilities themselves i don't know if they'd identify as disabled yet um but it's it's their journey so it's not up to me but um letting them know that in our society, there's a lot of um, expectation that we want to meet a certain criteria. Like the assumption for happiness is that everyone's going to have, you know, two legs, two arms, 10 toes, whatever. And that there's a lot of pressure to 
try and attain those things or attain as close as possible to those to be happy. Whereas, like you say, it's possible to be happy and have no, uh, you know, have no traditionally uh, framed limbs or, or, you know, to have a, a limb difference is the way that I would put it. Um, but the other, the flip side of that is sometimes now, like I said, as Big's getting older, they're coming to me and saying, but hang on, why, why does the world exist this way? And how can people have let it get to that point? Yeah, that's when social media comes in handy and I get out and I say, oh, well, this person's challenging it and, you know, this person is. It's not all, it's not all dire. And I'm wondering as well, I was going to ask you, as you bring up that point, what do you think is the relationship for you between arts and politics? You know, you've actually recently posted something on social media and it read, disabled black woman. I have always lived with consequence of public policy. I am political just by existing. Um, so what is the relationship for you between your arts practice and politics? I, like I said, I'm political just by existing because other people have the majority of control over my life. Um, people who determine how much money I live with, what resources I have. Um, and so any narrative I'm in control of um, is political, is me, my chance to say this is wrong or this is right or this is, you know, it's my chance to put out there what I feel. I, I don't, I think art is inherently political because art is a reflection of society and society is what makes up policy and, um, you know, who is impacted by policy. So, um, I think all those things are inextricably linked. I think you definitely only the people who are not impacted by the policies negatively are the people who um, say that things aren't political. In my that's in my opinion, um, it's something that the art reflects. Um, and if we don't fund the arts in the way that they should be, or if we don't place importance on the arts in the way like like you say poetry is you know the majority of poetry that you get exposed to is is very there's a lot of it of one style um and we don't get exposed to more because you know the I, I i can't make a living as a poet and i think that's one of the problems that um that the arts needs more supporting it because what do we learn from poetry that in or art in general what do we learn from art that influences our lives that changes our mind that makes that connection you know and it's uh, yeah so as i was going through your stuff i found this um one illustration that i came across before which was kind of um an illustration of two hands towards each other and it was text i think above or on the left and then under that illustration and the text read, okay, one of the, the texts at the thing at the top read, respect is free, and underneath it said, so don't be a fucker. Yeah. Love yeah. that because the hands are so, for people that obviously, listeners who can't see it, the hands are really kind of delicate looking and they have nail polish on them and then this the word kind of really jumps out at you from the illustration, which I love. Can you tell me about that? Like what's the inspiration for that? Um, I, I have always been fascinated at the juxtaposition between femininity and roughness 
and femininity and brashness and that it seems that um, society has a hard time combining the two. I can't be a woman who wears lace and also says fuck when in reality that's me. I love, you know, I will wear a pink tutu and swear like a sailor because that's my expression of me. So um, it kind of almost leads into the toxic positivity of, you know, everything will be okay and um, I don't see colour or I don't see disability or um, that sort of erasure of anything negative. Um, and then, yeah, that, that punch of like, you're a fucker. Because that sometimes in the in the world, you know, I I I don't consider myself a linguist, but I, I certainly love words and I love using them and and telling stories. But sometimes there's no better word than a swear word. It's punchy and it's so expressive and it's so um, universally understood. Um, even if you might not know the word, you understand that the feeling. Um, and so this this just a juxtaposition especially you know and i think i believe one hand is um in the illustration one is a bit darker than the other so one is darker skinned and, and one of sort of lighter skinned um and yeah speaks to this narrative of um black women always being angry if they're outspoken um you know in situations where other people would be perceived as being forward thinking or assertive it's like as soon as it comes out of a black woman you're hysterical and it you know that's that you're written off and your anger is written off um and I, I i love the idea of people having their own definition of what being a fucker is i just love that so much it's it's something that's spoken to me since i was a little girl of you know wanting to wear lace and florals and very and and just being this really loud because i'm i'm I tried to tone it down sometimes, but I am a loud person. I am opinionated. I talk a lot and it just, I can't, I, I can't separate those two elements. So the part of you, and I think that's such a fantastic illustration of that and a really incredible way to kind of actually challenge what it means to be you, what it means to be a black disabled woman and being able to be who you are fully and without that being written off or minimised or um, just ignored completely or gaslighted, yeah. all those experiences. So, you know, I think that's a fantastic kind of ending that I. this is what I wish for our society and for you and for all of us who navigate kind of multiple diverse identities that we can be fully who we are and that being safe because it's important to acknowledge that sometimes um, it's really unsafe, like you said. Yes. Um, so hopefully in spaces like these that we are creating ourselves in between the unsafe places, we can change that. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I mean, it's always good to know, to have on record that feminism doesn't have to be subscribed to one particular thing. The great thing about feminism is that you get the choice. Everybody gets the choice and all of those choices are equally valid. So what is their name? Alok? Alok Vade Menem? Do you know them? Yes. 
yes, amazing, amazing poet and just amazing all-round person. But I saw them talking about how, I mean, obviously I'm paraphrasing, but their goal in life is to give everybody the peace of respecting themselves and and knowing yeah knowing their worth and really knowing their worth like there's and so i think that's what i as soon as i heard that i was like yeah that's that's putting into words exactly what i'm i'm going for i love that but before we go can you share um where people can find you and your work i you could go to my website i have a website i believe it's firstnationsfeminist.com which is probably double check (laughs) Thank you. Um, I am doing a couple of speaking gigs, and but generally just um, hit me up on Instagram, First Nations underscore feminist, and hit me up. Or if you want to see me ranting, I do rant on Twitter at FN Feminist. There's a lot of swears, just as a warning. There's a lot of swears in the Twitter, so. That's okay. Well, we'll put it all in the show notes as well for people. Thank you so much, Renee, for coming to Unmarginalised. My pleasure. Before we go, a grateful thanks to the City of Melbourne, Ausgrand 2022 for supporting this episode and the entire second season of the Unmarginalized podcast. I would also like to respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this episode was produced, the Bunarang people of the Kulin Nation, and pay my respect to their elders past, present and emerging. As we tell our stories, I want to highlight the traditional owners of this land have been storytellers for generations. If you enjoyed or learned something from the episode, please rate, review and share it with a curious person in your life.